This time, how should Britain handle Trump? Why is the UN Secretary-General angry? We talk to Parliament's new defence watchdog, Tobias Elwood, and Poseidon lands in Scotland. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. President Donald Trump has hailed the great American comeback in his annual State of the Union address to Congress. It was a sentiment wildly and noisily supported by his Republican senators and dismissed with contempt by the Democrats. Well, Malcolm Brown is on the line from Feature Story News in Washington. Hello, Malcolm. Uh, The Democrats rubbished the president and his popularity rating immediately jumps to 47, then 49. The highest it's ever been. A, A good day at the office for President Trump then. Yes. And if anyone thought that uh, he would choose this moment to try and bind the country together, there may be a small number of people out of there out there who who might have thought that he would, uh, you know, take this moment to bind the country together and move beyond this. Uh, We've already seen just this morning at the national prayer breakfast just up the road from me here in Washington, D.C. That's not likely to happen. He came on stage and among several things that he did to reference the impeachment uh, trial in the Senate, uh, he held up copies of um, newspapers, which uh, uh, which uh, talked about his head in banner headlines, uh, his acquittal. So not taking this lying down, he's uh, hot on Twitter as ever uh, and attacking uh, the lone Republican who voted for his removal, Senator Mitt Romney. Indeed. And how did the Democrats foul up the impeachment process so easily? Well, they were in a bind, really. I mean, the, the failing, uh, as many people see it, of of the trial process was that there were no witnesses and there were no fresh documents introduced, even though you had John Bolton basically in the background, jumping up and down, waving his arms, saying, hey, talk to me, talk to me, uh, the former national security advisor. Uh, But of course, they were, in, in the minds of the Democrats, they were in a bind because what they wanted to do, they said, was to present this case to senators at a time when it was meaningful because they their concern was that uh, President Trump, if if not removed or in some way censured, would go about this behavior again with uh, an election campaign bearing down on us like a, a, a steam train. So they, they gambled that they would go ahead with the, with the evidence they had. The White House held fast, basically refused any cooperation. And at the end of the day, that seems to have been a successful tactic. And yet they would have got the witnesses and testimony they needed if they'd first taken it through the courts. Well, not in time, they would argue. They, they, the, the court process would not have given them a conclusive result in time for this next election, which was, they said, their big concern. So that, that, that was the nature of the bind. Mm, and that election coming up in November, the Democrats haven't even got a clear idea of a presidential candidate yet. No. Uh, in fact, we still don't know with exactitude what happened in the uh, first the first uh, election or caucuses in in Iowa, where it now seems that Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, uh, may just have the edge over fresh-faced uh, Pete Buttigieg, um, previously relatively unknown uh, figure, uh, town mayor essentially. Um, but yes, we don't know. The next next up is uh, New Hampshire, where mm. it, which is a primary process. But yeah, we we certainly don't know. That the thinking is obviously that this is going to come down in the de- on the Democratic side to a super progressive versus a centrist. But uh, who plays those roles? We don't know. And just just briefly, was there anything in that State of the Union address that stuck out to you in terms of foreign foreign policy? 
no, I mean, it's a reiteration really of, of, of a, a triumphal reiteration of uh, the achievements that uh, President Trump's, Trump thinks he's made and uh, certainly doesn't suggest any big uh, U-turns, um, hmm. uh, things to watch out for going forward will be how the atmosphere surrounding the incredibly poisonous atmosphere that now exists on the Hill will affect routine business. I mean, they're going to start talking about the defense spending coming up at some point next week, given that defense spending in the, in the context of Ukraine was a, a, a central issue of this impeachment fight. You know, what impact does that have mm. on, on the debate? All right, we'll leave it there for now. Malcolm Brown from Future Story News, thank you. Well, let's bring in Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Karen, the UK is in the new stage of its political and transatlantic history. The coincidence of Trump and Brexit suggests interesting times ahead. Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, it's unpredictability all around. Um, if I could just make one additional point to what Malcolm was saying about the impeachment process. I think the Democrats always knew that he would be acquitted in the Senate, Indeed. but they felt that he had broken the law and they they had to go ahead. So they never thought they would win. And even if they had had uh, more witnesses, it wouldn't have changed anything. Mm, so the making of a point. I, you know, yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, uncertainty here and uncertainty in the U.S., although I do think that uh, prime minister in the U.K. is probably a little bit more grounded in reality than in the United States. And I think, you know, he's, uh, well, let's see, let's see what he comes up with, but uh, he does have a majority. And so uh, he is able to push through reforms and, you know, we'll just have to wait and see about some of them. And how would you judge the state of Britain's relationship with America at the moment? Is the UK simply saying, let's just stick it out for another four more years? I think actually, you know, Boris, and uh, well, Prime Minister Johnson and uh, and President Trump have a very strong relationship. But I think everybody understands that President Trump is completely transactional and doesn't really have allies or friends. And so I think people at this point know how to manage him and get what they want out of it uh, in terms of trade deals and all sorts of other issues that are high on the agenda here. I, I'm not sure the UK will be able to get that much out of the United States right now because I think the US will see that uh, Britain needs a deal more than America does. Mm. So, you know, yes, a lot of people are waiting it out. I don't know, you know, I, don't, I really just don't, I don't have any idea what Prime Minister Johnson's thinking in, in, in that. I think other countries for sure, but he's a bit more in the, in the populist mode, uh, similar to Trump. Chris Lee, you've got an idea of what Boris Johnson is thinking. Is, is there a strategic reality check between the so-called special relationship at the moment? I think there is because you've got uh, uh, trade, uh, technology, uh, economics, politics, etc., uh, all coming up at the same time. Uh, so people are going around quoting as a guy, uh, Thomas Wright of Brookings who says that the UK relations with the United States is the worst ever since 1956. And then somebody else who will say, well, that's not exactly true. Now, the reasons behind this is that um, is, is partly the, the fact that you go out from the EU. Uh, if you go back, I don't know, it's probably, probably about 30 years now, you had a very impress impressive uh, American ambassador called Ray Seitz. You said Britain's voice is less influential in Paris and Berlin. If it's less influential in those two places, it's, it's unlikely to be influential in the United States. And there is there is the difficulty because, you know, twenty percent of United Kingdom exports go to the United States. America accounts for fifteen percent of UK trade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, supports one and a half million million jobs. This is a close knit 
dual society in some ways. Um, last October, the Emerson poll in the United States showed that 40% of the Americans, 40% of Americans thought that we were the most logical strategic partner. Now, these are big, big numbers, and, 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 and they mean much more than, than you would imagine if you were just thinking in terms of do we like uh, Trump or do we not like Trump. The other part of it is that when you go and talk to the military, uh, American military especially, they say, tell you the British and the Americans fight the same way. They fight in the same formations. They fight under the same sort of commands. They rehearse the same way. Uh, we're getting to a point now that everybody above, I think it's above the rank of captain in the British Army, has to go to America to train with Americans because that's how close that relationship is. As a thousand uh, British, British uh, forces actually in the United States and today uh, training there. And presumably, it is a much closer society than Presumably people the, the, the military relationships, though, will continue irrespective of the political. Oh, yes. I mean, there, 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 there's also an idea that if Fort Meade, for example, was knocked out, Fort Meade is the uh, intelligence gathering, uh, technological listening, listening, listening post uh, of, of the United States NSA, if Fort Meade was knocked out in time of war, the United States command would automatically shift to GCHQ. Mm. And the assumption it hadn't been knocked out itself. But there, you know, it's that is that close. Interesting thought. Well, another important speech was made this week, but didn't get as much press coverage. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, rounded upon those countries that ignore the recommendations or the Security Council resolutions concerning, for example, human rights violations. He was mainly talking about the continent of Africa which is a record of ignoring the United Nations and regards any resolution from the Security Council as interference. Uh, Karen von Hippel, um, isn't the essential weakness in the Secretary-General's argument that the United Nations has no means to enforce any Security Council resolutions? Right. I mean, you know, we have a very good Secretary General for the first time in a very long time, and yet he's unable to do things. Now, it's not it's not really the Africans that are the problem. It's actually the Russians and the Chinese and the Security Council who are just pretty much blocking anything that that uh, even a humanitarian airlift into Syria to save starving children, they'll even block that. So, you know, we're back into a superpower-ish stranglehold similar to the Cold War. And so it's very difficult for him to get anything done and use his good offices. Uh, you know, he needs to build consensus. And it's mm. just impossible in this new geopolitical reality that we're in where multilateralism is just not of interest to some of the big powers. And Christopher, his frustration was palpable, wasn't it? How do you reform the UN to make it a proper governing body to actually achieve the things that he wants to achieve? I suspect that you don't reform it in, in as much that you it makes it work in the way that everybody would probably want it work. I think it's a fact. Um, you know, this is a product of 1945. It hasn't shifted much on from there. Boutros Boutros Ghali, who was uh, an earlier uh, Secretary General, believed you could reform all in two ways, possibly. One is that you'd have to contrive to have a majority vote on the Security Council. Uh, and this is unlikely to happen because the Chinese and the, the Russians would immediately sort of uh, veto the idea. But and if you expanded the Security Council anyway and gradually were expanding it, for example, bringing in Germany onto the Security Council and maybe a couple of other uh, 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 powers, including, say, Japan, you might get that reform that you wanted. The other thing that the Beatrice Beatrice suggested was that the United Nations, if it had its own standing military force where it could send it to do something... 
uh, with the authority of uh, uh, of the Secretary General, then you may get things done which otherwise you can't get done by the security blessing. Karen, when you, when you hear the kind of things that the Secretary General was saying, talking about a, a wind of madness sweeping the globe and this heightened risk of miscalculation, it's quite... It's quite staggering and quite panicky in a way when, when you hear the kind of language he's using. Is he right to use it? Is, and do you believe in what he's saying? Look, I do believe it. Uh, and he's right to raise the alarm. But it's not the first time the UN has been in this situation. And in fact, for most of the UN's history, it has not been a very functional institution because, of course, during the Cold War, it wasn't able to do much. There was a period after the Cold War when we thought there was a bit of a heyday and we had these humanitarian interventions in you know, places like Bosnia and Somalia and the UN, you know, really thought it was going to change and transform uh, the world and become more peaceful, all this kind of stuff. And then we sort of realized, you know, over the last uh, really decade, especially since the start of the Syrian civil war, that it just was not going to happen. So, you know, look, it's important. We don't want to give up on the UN, but I suspect it just may not be ever as powerful again, or we may have to wait till we have leaders that are committed to making it work. Just but tonight. if that doesn't happen, it's just not going to it's not going to change. I just also remind myself that the United Nations isn't about international crises. Uh, I mean, you, I mean, you're not going through them, but go through the list of the things that are done in the United Nations name in very peaceful situations and humanitarian situations, and it's worth following up. All right, we'll leave it there. Yeah, for the and moment. of course, and just one quick point. I mean, don't forget the WHO is going to play the leading role on this coronavirus, uh, mm. and that's a UN agency. So Christopher's absolutely right. There's uh, a number of functional organizations, uh, exactly. Karen von Hippel, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time Thank today. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Still to come, Poseidon is here, but how have we managed without it? So Tobias Elwood is the new chair of the House of Commons Defence Committee. He's a former soldier who served in Northern Ireland, Germany and Bosnia. More recently, he was a defence minister in Theresa May's government. He told me he was delighted to be elected. I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled and I pay tribute to my predecessor, Julian Lewis, who chose to step back. And uh, it's a real honour to perhaps be a, the voice, uh, if you like, to, to back and support our brave armed forces. So uh, very much looking forward to it at such a critical time, knowing that we've got this defence, security and foreign policy review, the stock check, if you like, mm. on, on Britain's strength, our place in the world, the threats that we face uh, and how we should advance our defence posture uh, into the future. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Dr Julian Lewis, your predecessor. Did he have any words of advice for you? Oh, he had lots of words of advice and lots of thoughts. Um, he was doing a terrific job in uh, putting so many reviews and uh, uh, reports together. There's a few that are uh, still in the oven, if you like, uh, ready to, to, to pull out. There's one on drones that we will complete, hybrid warfare as well. But our main focus will be to uh, parallel the, the big review that's taking place. Um, and I'll probably be doing that in conjunction with the Foreign Affairs Select Committee with Tom Tugendhat. Yeah, he, he was at pains when he talked to us recently to, to stress that it's really important that defence is taken out of consideration of other things like uh, national security, like what happened with the previous uh, previous defence secretary that he argued for the case of defence to be, to be dealt with separately. Will you be uh, careful about that? I think we need to recognise that defence is one aspect of 
you know, British government foreign policy. Uh, it isn't just defending the, you know, the shores, the, the, the UK, uh, but our interest is it's more than that, is how do we support upstream uh, our allies, work developing relationships that clearly bleeds into foreign policy as well. And then there's trade, which is so critical post-Brexit. Um, all of this, uh, you cannot have, as the last STSR points out, you know, if you have a uh, economic uh, policy, it must tie into your to your security policy. The two are absolutely interrelated. And why have you said that the next decade will be the most dangerous and volatile since the end of the Cold War? Well, we're actually in, as the current CDS, uh, Nick Carter, uh, the head of the armed forces, has said, uh, we're in a, a state of constant competition. You know, the the uh, if you like the character of war has changed from being one of grabbing terrain or you know sticking a flag somewhere uh, to moving to intellectual property to uh, the digital domain as well. Um, it's much easier to disrupt somebody's economy by uh, interfering, you know, with their financial services or uh, their nuclear power stations and so forth. And we are constantly, every day, uh, being attacked in this in this way. Our satellites are vulnerable, uh, but this we shouldn't neglect. You know, our conventional capabilities too. Sea lanes are challenged as well, um, and ultimately we need to stay friends uh, with our allies and make new friends as well. And that requires developing upstream relationships uh, you know, across Africa, through Commonwealth and so forth. So there's a lot of work to do to review the status of our armed forces, which uh, I think themselves feel a little bit neglected. And when do you think this de- defence review will actually deliver and is there enough time to look at it seriously? It's a really good question as to the time. I understand, but I stand corrected if this isn't the case, that it's they're looking to produce something by November, which is a short period of time. I want to conduct two uh, reviews uh, in connection with this, two studies. Firstly is what does a proper uh, review uh, look like? Because we've had different styles going back to George Robertson's back in 1998, which was seen actually as a bit of an exemplar of how it should be done. But since then, they've often been curtailed because spending reviews, government spending reviews, have coincidentally happened at exactly the same time putting a limit on what you know the the MOD can actually spend now that you know makes it very difficult for anybody doing any planning in the MOD to say well we actually need x y or z when your budget is capped so we need to actually say who do we want to be how do we want to you know uh, meet our interests uh, and the role we want to play on the international stage how much will actually that cost us and then take it that way and i hope that's why i want to put out a, 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 a bold statement of what a review should look like. And you think that can all be done by November and taken into account? I, I actually personally think you need longer, but I'm, I'm not the government. So it'll be the government that will be doing this and it'll be our job to scrutinise what they are doing. And in terms of the role of your committee, um, it's probably fair to say it doesn't have power, but it can have influence. When do you think it's had successful influence on policy in the past and, and how do you intend to continue that in the future? I think it's done an amazing job, for example, on exposing the challenges on the historical investigations into uh, you know, soldiers that served in Northern Ireland. I think it's done a brilliant job in raising that profile to say this is unacceptable. We're still waiting for the government to provide the answers, and uh, we understand that that'll be coming soon. But a brilliant job in, in doing that. So it can have the, the necessary teeth. As you say, it's limited power, but the influence it can yield... I hope actually using good people like yourselves to actually articulate a strong message and and ask those important questions. 
That was Tobias Elwood, the new chair of the Commons Defence Committee. And Christopher Lee, um, another way of it having influence, I suppose, is if you have a chair who's independent-minded and can actually bring together people from different parties with the united recommendations and voice to have influence. Yeah, it's also true. When, when This is a select committee. Now, before there were uh, parliamentary committees, but not select committees. Collect, select committees are selected, i.e. selected people to be on them, a selected chairman, and therefore, more, more important, it was set up by a man called Norman St. John Stevens, who said that the chairman of a committee, whether it be the Defence Committee or any other committees, had to had to have a remarkable disposition, hmm. had to be recognised, had, uh, had to be admired uh, by government and also the department to which he was grilling. And because the defence ministry has the ability and has exercises the okay. ability to take absolutely no notice whatsoever of this committee, whoever's running it. Right. Well, the first of the RAF's new P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft arrived in Scotland this week. The Pride of Murray touched down in the UK for the first time at Kinloss Barracks. The Ministry of Defence is spending £3 billion on the fleet of nine PA-8s. They'll be used to hunt submarines and to carry out search and rescue missions. Aviation analyst Paul Beaver joins me now. Paul, the Poseidon's predecessor, the Nimrod, was scrapped in the 2010 Defence Review because the government then believed it didn't need this sort of capability. So why do it now? Well, the government took um, what's called a capability holiday um, in 2010. Um, And there were lots of reasons for that. Overspend on the the Nimrod's um, replacement, the Nimrod Mark IV. Um, The fact that people thought that uh, uh, the threat profile had, had reduced... Um, all of those now, a decade later, um, look rather silly. Um, and, and the only mitigating thing in this is that the then Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, decided that we would send Nimrod crews around the world to our allies, Australia, Canada, and the United States in particular, but also Norway, and train them to keep up their their expertise. And hey, and guess what happens? They come up top of courses because our, uh, what we used to be called the Kipper fleet, the uh, the um, uh, ASW aircraft and the Nimrod squadrons mm. were very good. And the key now is to get the Poseidon squadron back up to that level. So how do you think this capability holiday went 10 years or so, wasn't it? Well, we haven't seen anything really too bad happening in a time when um, Russian submarine activities has increased tenfold. But we have been borrowing assets. We've had Canadian and Norwegian, Dutch, German. We've had New Zealand, Australian aircraft covering for us. But you have to remember that Nimrod doesn't just do over water. It does over land as, or did over land as well. And Poseidon has got that same role. The only difference is Nimrod could do it at low level where you can really um, prosecute a submarine. Poseidon has got this new high level system, which both Australia and America are finding real problems with mate work. Um, and the other thing, just just while we're on the negative sides, of course, we've had to buy all the American weapons and sensors, which has caused um, problems in our own industry because we were, in 2010, the world leaders in ASW torpedoes and sonoboys, the things that listen for submarines in the water. But is it true yet that those, that those weapons systems and sensors, that they're not actually available yet because the US Navy's not yet brought those systems into service? Correct. So we have to remember that Poseidon has been bought under what's called foreign military sales, FMS. Uh, That means that the crews have to even wear, I am told, American flight 
uh, overalls and underwear uh, hmm. in the aircraft, um, and it and it carries torpedoes and and other systems, um, which the Americans will have to buy and put into service before we can have them. However, it does still mean that we are on the front foot with this, and we are training up um, on this aircraft. Um, so when these these uh, weapons and sensors do become fully operational, uh, we'll be in a good place. It's better to have this capability than no capability. Okay, so we've got one. There's going to be nine in total mm-hmm. of these aircraft. Um, I mean, how good is our capability at the moment and how long till it's up to full speed? The full operating capability has not yet been announced, um, but I would imagine it's going to take two or three years. Um, first of all, the aircraft have got to move from um, Kinloss, the temporary base, uh, which is actually, ironically, the old Nimrod base, mm. and they're going to move across uh, the other side of Moray Shire to, uh, to Lossiemouth. Uh, new facilities being built there, and one of the few things in defence which you can go, hey, these are on time at the moment and oh they seem to be on budget as well um a, a really good facility has been designed there and, and this is really close work between boeing the manufacturer uh, at the royal air force and dns down in uh, in abbey wood you know putting together good expertise uh, and it's it's going to make it really work well christopher lee it's uh, interesting isn't it that the if you if you look back we're talking about nimrod and nimrod how it was scrapped very quickly nimrod was a botched idea anyway because it wasn't the original concept of the use of that airframe, was it? Uh, And I remember the Defence Secretary sort of saying, well, we'll get round to it this way, you know. It's interesting, Christopher, because, of course, Nimrod came from Comet, an airliner of the 1950s. Um, But the Mark II, which was the aircraft that was in service until until 2010, I think was probably the the best um, available in in any, uh, any Air Force or Navy in the world. The problem was upgrading it. And when they came to look at the upgrade and putting different bits in, they found that every single Nimrod was slightly different. When you put a laser scan on, um, they found that there are all sorts of differences in the aircraft and you know, by several centimetres. And that caused a, a bunch of problems. They took the wings off down in Bournemouth and they found huge amounts of corrosion. There were all sorts of things because they were going to remodel the Mark IIs into the Mark IVs. Now, that, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's new wine in old bottles type what, situation. I mean, what do you think, uh, Paul, that... Um the military has learned from this experience as you, you outline the problems of the Nimrod of, of upgrading it it was decommissioned capability gap now bringing new planes three years to wait till it's full capability I mean what's really been learned from this whole experience oh I think what's been learned from from the experience sadly it will be that that civil servants in the treasury will go well there you are we've had 10 years without it and you know the world hasn't crashed and the sky hasn't fallen in but it, it was only through good planning in the Royal Air Force that we've managed to get the crews around what were called the seed corn crews. Um, you had to be very careful. We're coming up to a defence review. It's going to be called, I understand, the integrated review, the integrated review of, of security, defence and anything else you can put into the title, which will report in November. It hasn't been announced in Parliament yet, so it isn't real. But they're looking at capability gaps there and capability holidays in that mm. to make the budget work because... 
there's another black hole in the defence procurement budget. And on that note, we'll leave it. Paul Beaver, thank you for your time today. Now, Christopher, at Trump's State of the Union address, all members of the executive, the cabinet, attended on Capitol Hill, apart from one. When Donald Trump left the White House, one member of his executive went into hiding. We're talking about the, the designated survivor, aren't we? Made famous by that series. Yeah. Now, the designated survivor is one member of the cabinet um, who stays behind in something in case something terrible happens to the rest of them who are all on the hill listening to the president. And he, therefore, becomes head of state. And don't forget, you see, in the United States, uh, the president is not just like the prime minister. He's actually the head of state. He's the equivalent to a monarch. And therefore... There is no, there's no system of saying, right, next you're in command, you're in command, you're How in command. How do they choose the person? Uh, it's, the, it's somebody in the secretary's office, uh, in, in, in the president's office, just said it's your term. In fact, it was, uh, it was the, what we would call the home secretary, a stay behind. He got in a cupboard because nobody knows, well, nobody's supposed to know where he is. So he said, cupboard? I'm, I'm, I'm no off. way. It is, it's a big cupboard. He said, I'm, I'm off to the cupboard. And they say, we're off to the, he's off to the cupboard, you know. And he's gone to oh, the cupboard, dear. but nobody must know which room and which cupboard he's gone into. And when does he get let out? It sounds like Harry Potter to me. When does he get let out again? He's out and he's watching for A68. Get your kids to watch for A68. A68 is the biggest iceberg ever in the Antarctic. And it's it's cut loose. And it's cut loose into the South You've Atlantic. Just put so many visual images in my head. Thank you for that, Christopher. And thank you, <laughs> thank you for listening to us today. My thanks to all of our guests. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS. Sit rep, be quiet, Christopher. We'll be back same time next week from me, Kate Chabot, and from Krista. Goodbye.